Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Augustia, general partner at OVNI Capital, a VC fund specializing in France-based tech startups. Based in Paris, Augustin manages the company's investments in France and Israel. He was previously a partner at New Fund, a French-American fund overseeing 20 investments in companies such as Fair Money, the largest African neobank, and UMiami, a plant-based texture technology company. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review, and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Gus, welcome to the European VC. It's super nice to have you here today. You know, let's kick things off with the standard question of Gus, tell us, how did you get into venture? What brought you and attracted you to this wonderful world that we all love? David and Jess, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being on your podcast. What got me into venture? The very first time I touched venture capital was as a business angel, as an actual business angel investor. I started my career in 2008 in New York. M&A uh, at Lazar. And in a very uncommon fashion, I think at the time with my bonus, I didn't really want to invest in equities. Back then, you know, equities, you had to pay to get in, you had to pay to get out, you had to pay to make every single little change. And I just felt like it was a waste of good money. And at the same time, I had weird friends who were starting uh, startups. And I started investing little checks, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000. I think the largest check I invested was 10 grand at the time. So that's how I got into venture. But I never thought that one day it would become my full-time job. I think a lot of our listeners, but also a lot of the stakeholders that we interact with at UVCs or our syndicates, you know, they fit into that profile that you just described you were back then when, you know, when you started doing some angel investing. So I'd love to ask you about your motivations back then. So, you know, was it a learning thing? Was it financial gain thing? Was it kind of a mix? Was it just out of kind of fun as well? Yeah, it it was all of these. I was at Lazar in M&A. You're taught all these different ways to grow your business, to manage your business, to improve your business, acquire and sell assets. And I thought this skill set, I was going to be able to kind of pass it on to those investments I made. Obviously, it was completely different. So I was not the most useful person in that regard. I was more of a soundboard, you know, with whom my friends, you know, would regularly check in and say, oh, I'm thinking of doing this, doing this, doing this. So it was to learn. It was for fun. There's obviously some sort of financial interest in it, but I quickly learned that when you're investing as an angel, you got to mark down your investment to zero, you know, the day after you invest and just hope and work for the best. If not, it's going to be a roller coaster for your wallet. (laughs) Exactly. Let me maybe just double click on that. So how do you move from that, right, to today, right? There's a bit of miles distance, right? It's completely different. One, two K, so maybe 10K to now VOVC, right? So after two years in m and I moved to private equity at Colony Capital. So I actually started investing with much bigger checks. And in 2015, you know, five years later, I said, look, I've invested over $100,000 of my own money in different startups. Why don't I try to invest my own money in my own startup? You know, I can do it. And so when I turned 30, I moved to Mexico. One of my good friends from New York, I had relocated there and was telling me all great things about the Mexican ecosystem, VC, entrepreneurial ecosystem. I moved there. We started a very non-VC compatible business 
a very non-scalable business. But you know, when it's your first time starting a company, you, you a lot of times you tend to get blindsided by certain obvious things. But here I am in Mexico starting a smartphone repair business. We raised $2 million and we opened 25 stores in four different cities in Mexico. So picture this, you know, it's those small stores in the middle of a mall. You give your phone and in 30 minutes, we fix it. Sounds like a great business. It's not a great business. And the truth is, on top of not being scalable, having poor unit economics, I actually miss the times as a business angel or as a private equity investor, the time where every day I was faced with a different industry, a different challenge, a different entrepreneur. You know, as a CEO of a smartphone repair business, a lot of the days were the same. Obviously, it was just, you know, trying to solve problems. It was just the same thing, smartphone repair, people not showing up to work, phones being stolen, warranties not, you know, phones breaking, blah, blah, blah. And I told my co-founder, I said, look, I don't think I'm a great you know, mono-task entrepreneur, mono-entrepreneur. I don't think it's made for me. I wanted to try it, but it's not what excites me and drives me every day. So I told the guy, look, I actually want to quit. I had to try to find a way out and replace me with someone. And at the same time, I said, look, I want to make this business angel investment my professional career. And, you know, it was 2017. I had been in Mexico for two years. And I could go back to New York where I spent most of my life. Or I could go to Paris. And I decided to move to Paris. I thought there was more of an opportunity to quickly join a tier one fund. There were fewer funds and the ecosystem was growing, whereas New York was a lot more established. And in France, I talked to literally every single VC in France, got offers from two VCs, both of them French-American VCs, so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And that's when I joined New Fund in September 2017. That's my way from a business angel as a, as a sidekick to super business angel as a professional job. Now that story with Newfound has come to an end and you have founded Avni. And I've been following you on the sidelines. We've been doing a couple of things together. And I was like, fuck yes. Now he's going to do his own firm. <laughs> so, so I'm super happy to see that. But Gus, tell us why should we be super happy that you uh, have decided to build Avni? And maybe before to everyone who is as little experience in the French linguistics. Tell us what does OVNI mean and why Why did you pick that name? Yeah, let's answer that one first. OVNI, and I think OVNI will speak to the French speakers, Spanish speaker, and Portuguese speaker, I think. Because OVNI in those three languages means the same thing. It means UFO. It's an acronym for UFO. But I think those are the only three languages it works in. So for everyone else, we're UFO capital. Why are we UFO capital? Because if you've been an entrepreneur, you know that you are a UFO, you know, as a person. You got to be a little crazy to become an entrepreneur. So that's who we go after. And look, I say this with a lot of goodwill. I consider myself an entrepreneur again. You know, it's a little crazy, but it's part of the adventure. And thank you for the kind words, Andreas, by the way, uh, you know, with my moving from Newfound to Avni. Look, I spent five years at Newfound. I did 22 deals. Interestingly, and maybe very naively at the beginning, you know, I moved to France in 2017. And a lot of the entrepreneurs I met were telling me about building this startup for France and then waiting two, three years to move abroad. And to me, it sounded a little crazy. I said, look, if you want to build a global business, you got to start from day one. You got to have people in your team who don't necessarily speak French. You got to make sure everyone in your team speak a second language in French. You got to start selling your product to other countries in France so that you have a more global product. And so all my deals have this in common international team, 
global product day one. And the reason why I started Avni is, look, New Fund was a team of four to five investors, depending on the time. We all had our different kind of thesis. Not everyone was investing on this model. And I really thought there was a low-hanging fruit in the French ecosystem of solely focusing on international teams based in Paris or anywhere in France. And so that's why I left New Fund. Honestly, I had an amazing time there, great successes. We made fantastic investments. One of the investments I'm the most proud of is six months in France, I meet this guy, half Nigerian, half German, based in Paris, speaks English for the most part, and he comes into my office and he says, look, I want to leverage French engineering excellence and build a neobank focused on Nigeria's 170 million unbanked people. And I said, look, this is fantastic. The team was amazing. They had traction, a product. And that was the type of project that made me excited. That made me, okay, if they execute properly and they're able to do this, we can make the lives of millions of people just better. And, you know, five years later, it's the largest neobank in Africa. They have a few million clients solely in Nigeria and in India. And they've raised, you know, a Series A, a Series B, a Series C. And so, and the reason why I say this is I think back then in 2018, this guy was an OVNI. This guy was a UFO for most of the VC funds. Like everyone's like, what is this guy trying to build a firm based in France, but focusing on Africa? And on top of this, French is not really his go-to language. You know, he's talking to me in English and, you know, I'm used to people speaking French. There's nothing wrong with this. But in regards with the VC business model, to me, it just seemed a little crazy to pay crazy high valuation when you don't have the exits later on if you're a Franco-French startup. It's perfect, right? Because it's smacked down on your thesis. Before we started recording, I said, <laughs> brace Gus, because I think we're at least going to have to say things that I know every time I say it, I tend to get a bit of uh, <laughs> a bit of heat from some people in the French tech ecosystem. For sure. From the outside looking in, France is not always the easiest place to break in as a VC, right? Because it is a somewhat closed ecosystem. I'd love you to continue down the vein of saying, why is it that you believe that there is space for OVNI in the French ecosystem? So I think culturally, you know, France is a very proud country, proud of its history, proud of its language, you know, and really trying to defend its language. And I'll give you a small example. My wife is Mexican. We moved to France in 2017 and she's a product designer. And everyone was like, look, you can work with us, but you need to speak French. I was like, why does she need to speak French? She's not in a customer-facing position. It's fine. It's cultural. It's the country. But I think we're missing out on something bigger. You know, we're preventing ourselves from working with the best in their field just because we want them to speak French. And to give back to Caesar what he's owed, I think France has gone a long way to modernize itself in this regard. Station F, I don't know if you guys have had the chance to visit. They opened in 2017 and by default, their language was English. Everything was in English. And I think at the time it was very disruptive. People like, I, I still remember, it's funny. I remember at Station F, I did the onboarding at Station F. There's 20 French funds, you know, 20 French VC funds, two people from Station F and everything is done in English. And it seems a little weird because like, look, we're all speaking French. Why do we need to speak English? But they really insisted. They never gave up. And then there's also Macron. Macron started an initiative called the French Tech Visa, where anyone who's willing to work in tech and create something in France can come and work in France. And so I think these are little things. They're changing the country little by little. And you see now a lot more entrepreneurs realizing that they need to be more global more quickly. They need to 
work with people, non-French speakers, more quickly. And so where I think there's a space for Agni and other funds who may have similar strategy, although ours is 100% on these people, is I think today 80% of my deal flow is really Franco-French. But that doesn't mean that 80% of deal flow is, is bad deal flow. There's a lot of great startups in those 80% where I could say, hey, have you thought of maybe applying to this accelerator in Boston? You know, have you thought of applying to YC? You've got an amazing idea. You know, why don't you try to leverage U.S. capital, British capital, Nordic capital, German capital to create this French-based international champion? I'm biased, and I think you've heard me say this, Andreas, but we're at the dawn of this, at the dusk, rather, uh, of a third revolution in the French ecosystem where if the ecosystem is going to keep growing on private capital, we need more international mindset, DNA, you know, companies going global. So that's why I think there's a perfect time for an OVNI to kickstart this revolution, to pursue this revolution. And I really think it's a revolution. On that topic, I'm really enjoying this, but I want to kind of try and play... uh play the devil's advocate here, right? Because if we're all agreeing, this is a really fucking boring interview. So, Go for it. Um, I see what you're saying, but is there a point to questioning to what extent there's enough deal flow today? Not from the perspective of talent and expertise. I think it goes without saying that, well, from a macro perspective, Europe has amazing talent, France has amazing talent, and Paris is like the main hub, right? So it's not on that point. It's more great talent without right mindset and ventures doesn't really add much value, right? So if they don't have this global mindset, at least regional dominance mindset, right? They're not really a good match for what you just described. So how would you explain to maybe a skeptic on that topic that, no, there is actually enough scale here for a fund like OVNI to exist and to back the, let's call them the French OVNIs, Franco-French OVNIs, as you call them. No, I love the question. Look, we're a fund. We did a 15 million euro first close. So I think... In that respect, hopefully there's enough deal flow. And I think there is enough deal flow. I see enough deal flow. I think if all of a sudden everyone started to do this, then you know we might get squeezed out or an OVNI might get squeezed out because there's all of a sudden all these funds focused on international. But I don't think they will. And it's part of the new generation. I think if you look at a lot of managers in the French BC ecosystem, they're smart, experienced investors for sure. But their experience rely mostly on scaling French businesses at the growth level and not early on. I think where we're different is we're saying, look, by default, we're managers with a international experience. And so we're going to help you in that respect. So I don't think anytime soon, the entire ecosystem is going to shift. It's going to gradually shift with the new generation of managers. I think a lot of the younger manager, the 25 to 35 year old managers, they have this international DNA in them, or more of them have it. And as they become partners in funds, they're going to bring it. And they're going to say, look, enough with the local French marketplaces that ends at .fr is a French name. And there's no way an index or an Excel will be interested in Series A. And, and so it's gradual. And I think that's where we're positioning ourselves. There's a gap in the market. We're in that gap. And hopefully, we'll, you know, we'll grow with it. What does that mean? Maybe that means in seven, eight years, we'll have to raise a Series A fund, even though that's not the focus, but to continue supporting the ecosystem. And hopefully, you know, in 10 years, we'll be comparable to the Netherlands or the Nordics or Israel or Berlin or, I mean, all these ecosystems. But it's going to take 10 years. Can I ask you just because I consider myself to be relatively well-versed in um, who are the players across Europe? 
but I do find France a bit hard, <laughs> right? Hard in what sense, David? To map out, to get to know, to build relationships with, right? As I wouldn't put myself in the LP bucket, but I would put myself in the VC bucket as a player in the industry, right? It's not the easiest one to build relationships and get to know who's doing what, understand what they're focusing on. And so I'm not asking you to compare yourself to what exists in France, but I'd love to ask you, would you give us a hand here? How would you map out the French ecosystem in terms of, of the VC players from pre-seed, seed, series A, you know, who's who, who's what, what is happening that's exciting? And obviously, I'm asking you to detach yourself completely from Omni and take a bird's eye view on the French tech ecosystem. Whatever you feel comfortable. If you want to name them, name them. But uh, also just understanding, is it, you know, the exciting funds focusing on specific verticals? Are there specific areas that you think are most exciting from an international perspective? So if I'm a, an international VC looking in, you know, what is exciting? You know, I can say that about Portugal, my ecosystem, you know, where I think we have strong players, the verticals that I think we're kind of really strong but I have a hard time with France, to be honest. Yeah, there's been a lot of evolution. I think if you talk to a fund five years ago, historically, I feel like French funds, the way they've done this is we used to invest at the seed level, the French Series A refinance and the French Series B refinance. And most likely it's going to include, you know, the BPI, you know, the French public bank, which has been an amazing actor in the ecosystem. And then we'll sell to an American or German or British company. And, and then people will say, oh, you know, it's too bad. We had this great French company and we sold it too early. And so then the French started putting money and creating those growth funds. And so now we finally have those growth funds and the growth funds now are able to help this company go international. But going back to your question, look, I'm biased. What's exciting is I think this low-hanging fruit of convincing entrepreneurs to go international. One fund that, that moved things around two years ago when they started was First. I'm sure you've heard of them. Because First had a different, you know, they had a different speech. They said, look, we have to stop being shy with our startups. Let's try to aim for Europe in Europe as your as your home country. And I really like that. I do think with experience, it is extremely complicated to scale a business in Europe. And to go back to what's exciting in France is France has an exciting pool of engineers. But the problem with France is you put someone who went to a business school and you put someone who went to an engineering school, the engineer will always be the smarter guy. There's something historical, cultural in France where if the engineer says one thing, the business guy has to follow, where it should be the opposite. You know, at least in the VC world, we have this great idea, but let's try to sell it. Problem with France is a lot of time we have those great ideas and we never sell them. I mean, I, I won't name it. And so I think that's where there's an opportunity is leveraging the, the younger generation of French, you know, again, 20 to 35. They all speak English. They've all lived abroad. They all love, you know, the US, UK, the Anglo-Saxon way of life. And I think they understand a lot more the risks and benefits of going global. So what I think is exciting is nurturing local engineering talent, matching it with the right support, whether it's, you know, investor or a co-founder and building global product based in France. There's another peculiarity to the French ecosystem, and that is the dominance of Paris. It is more dominant in France than Berlin is in Germany and London is in the UK. So I'd love to ask you, you know, your take on why it's like that. And also Avni's take, are you just saying, well, Paris is the place where it happens. <laughs> so yes, if someone comes from Lyon, I'm, I'm going to take the call, but I'm not going <laughs> to set my expectations too high. How do you think about that? You know, I love this question because it is a potentially controversial question, but I like it and I'll tell you why. I think having Paris as such a dominance of the city of Paris on the ecosystem is an enormous positive on the country. And we have to leverage that. 
you know, you look at the U.S., everything happens in San Francisco, right? And I think the fact that everything is concentrated, you got capital, you got human capital, you got talent, you got a lot of concentration to build the best startups in the world. So Paris can offer that. And where I think it goes hand-to-hand with the little cities in France that also have really smart entrepreneurs but fewer talent, fewer capitals, there's nothing wrong with starting your business in Lyon and opening an office in Paris because you're only two hours away by train to leverage, you know, product. If you're in France, you got to put yourselves in France, in Paris, your product, they're going to be in Paris. You know, maybe your devs are going to be in Lyon. Or, but the truth is most of them are going to be in Paris if you want a global pool. So for me, it's a force that we don't, that we should explore more. And with regards to Avni, look, our first investment is in Montpellier. We already told him, look, you got to build an office in Paris. He's built an office in Paris where he put all his sales and product. And he's opening an office in the States now. Any entrepreneur in France, wherever they start from, at some point, if they want to be successful, they need to open a satellite office in Paris. It doesn't cost that much money. You know, the beauty about France, as you guys know it, it's a very centralized country. So from every single city in France, you're two to three hours by train to Paris. You could go for a day, you know. And to answer a bit more specifically your question, Avni, you know, we're two co-founders. I'm based in Paris. And funny thing is my co-founder is based in Montpellier. And he covers literally the southern part of France, where there's a great pool of potential entrepreneurs. And he spends, you know, two days a week in Paris. I was going to say your co-founder is the lucky one that has the nice weather and uh, <laughs> the sea every day. <laughs> so we know who actually works then. Okay. <laughs> Whoever wants to go to Paris. <laughs> it's funny you say this because uh, he enjoys, what, 300 days of sun? I enjoy, uh, you know, 130 days of sun. Uh, so a lot less. But, but, but you have when to we... enjoy double. You have to enjoy double. Yeah. That's that. Yeah, <laughs> That's I was about right. to say, you, but you enjoy them three times more. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when we talk with him, he's like, "Look, do not move to the south. We need someone in Paris." But look, I love Paris. I love the energy. You know, I spent 20 years in New York. I spent two years in London too. So I, you know, I've known exciting, dynamic cities. I think Paris is definitely not as dynamic as London or New York, for that matter. But it is dynamic. There's a lot of international people. It's a lot of new ventures, new restaurants, new businesses, innovation. And I'm challenged every day. You know, I'm challenged every day and, I, and it keeps me young. And I think there's nowhere else in France I would want to be if I were a VC. So it's one of those, you know, it's like the language in France. People say, oh, you know, 80% of businesses in Paris, it's not normal. I'm like, it's, it's, it's called competitive advantage. You know, 80% of sun tourism is based in the south of France. Everyone has their own uh, advantages and disadvantages. So Gus, now we've spoken a lot about the uh, French ecosystem and we're very thankful for that because I don't think that there's many that have a better eye to that and where it's headed than you do. But I'd love to dive a bit more into Avni and ask you and challenge you a bit to tell us what exactly is it that's the unfair advantage of Avni because Gart knows that there's many funds out there. There's not that many seed funds in France. You're right. There's a lot of funds in France, but there's not many funds that assume that basically say, look, we're only seed fund and we're going to do seed fund well. One of the reasons is historically it's been tough to get some good numbers if you're a seed fund only. And so a lot of seed fund in France, they moved up to series A, series B growth, AUM accumulation. What makes us different is for one is our investment thesis. I think we talked a lot about this. We're focused on international. The second one is we're focused on tech, on what's called tech centric products. So We want proprietary technology at the core of the product. So we're not going to do e-commerce. We're probably not going to do marketplaces. We're probably not going to do prop tech. 
PropTech is very local. And SaaS B2B, it might be a shocker. We're going to find a B2B SaaS that has some sort of proprietary tech element to it. That makes you different from a potential overcapitalized Israeli or American competitor. So in that thesis, I think we're very different. On the French ecosystem at the seed level, no one does that. No one is focused purely on tech. And a lot of people say, okay, but how can you do tech? You guys are two you know, business school guys. And what we've done is we've surrounded ourselves with a network of 50 LPs. And I think a lot of people will tell you this, you know, they've surrounded themselves with a network of XLPs, right? And we're actually trying to leverage them. And so hear me out before you laugh. The first one is, you guys are familiar with it, we're using Affinity as a CRM. We're giving every single one of our LPs access to our own OVNI network alliance so that they can use it themselves to meet other people. But obviously, the idea is to help our own startups. For anyone who's not familiar with Affinity, Affinity basically scrapes your email and then creates a big network of people. It's kind of like a LinkedIn on drugs, basically. So that's the first one. The second one is, I really want to continue this trend, but we're trying to organize events every two months, not expensive events, where we bring all our LPs together, some of our LPs together, some entrepreneurs, other VCs, business people who may be interested to invest. And, you know, just this year, we've done this three times. Two times at, at something called iFly, you know, it's this thing where you, you feel like you're flying in this chute. And then one was called Wave in Paris. It's this thing where you can actually uh, surfboard indoor in Paris. Those things are very cheap to organize, but everyone is super excited to participate. Let me tell you this thing. When someone invests in a seed fund and you're telling them, look, we're aiming for a 2x to 3x net over 10 years, I don't think anyone is going to be super excited about this. It's a great return. But when you're telling them, you know, seven to 10 years, we're going to, we're aiming for this. If someone is like, wow, this sounds like the best deal I've heard all year, he's lying. I think what 80% of investors want when they're investing in a fund is also access to a community. When you're talking about a seed fund, access to tech, access to entrepreneur, access to younger people in them, we're going to challenge them on new innovation, interesting innovation, disruptive innovation for their own businesses. And I think that's what we're trying to give. And I think it resonates. And to anyone listening in thinking, ah, I want to go to that. Next up is a ski trip, I believe, in uh, in the mountains. So, <laughs> so for sure, don't miss out. It's true. You know, it's funny. I, I didn't mention this. It was last week. There was a concert in a ski resort in France. And we said, look, if you want, we bought 10 tickets. You know, maybe a bit more, but 10 tickets to attend. If you want to attend, come with us. And so, you know, we met potential LPs, entrepreneurs, VCs, and we had a great time. And the truth is, it could be great for M&A transaction. It can be great for new deals. It can be great to catch up. And again, I think we're the only one doing it. I'm not trying to give out ideas to, to everyone. I'm sure people have, you know, can do it on themselves, but it's easy to organize. On the uh, note of ideas, I want to ask you a question. Who the fuck gets on national TV on the day of their first close? Gus is raising his hand and saying, I do. That is PR very well done. <laughs> Tell me, Gus, how, do you, how did you manage that? By the way, a lot of people have asked me, who did we hire for our PR? No one. We did everything ourselves. We are a startup. You know, we're not going to spend three or four or five or six grand for someone to set up interviews. No, I... You know, it's funny you say that. And I emailed the people I know at BFM, you know, that you know, national TV. And I said, look, we're announcing February 6th. Can I go uh, on February 6th at 9 p.m.? And they said, look, you've been available for us past five years every month. Sure, come on February 6th. So, by the way, it was the birthday of my daughter. It was the sixth birthday of my daughter. So, 
I went. That's cool. You know, I did the, the, the interview and then I, I came back home to celebrate with her. But for anyone who's willing to announce, literally uh, over the past five years, we built relationship with journalists, with uh, cast directors. And, you know, in a nice way, we said, look, we're bringing some innovation to the VC market in France. You think the subject would interest you? You know, we wrote a little PR. Uh, we shared it with all of them. We took some professional pictures. By professional, I mean on an iPhone uh, that, that we then retouched. It cost us zero. We got a lot of publicity and, and a lot, by the way, a lot of deal flow in the next two or three weeks. Insane amount of deal flow. It increases that number that you can say we only invest in half. Of it was not. It was not the goal, but I didn't think about that. <laughs> We're very selective. Uh, on a serious note, guess what is really cool about the two topics we spoke about here right now? You know, you're talking about your network, LPs. You know what you do with them. Then you're talking about how you manage to get on national TV. There's a common thread here, and you kind of said it, it's about building relationships, right? So the same way there's this topic, and a lot of people talk about it, right? If you really want to leverage your relationship as an investor with a founder and help them and add value, you can't rely on just a quarterly report, right? That interaction doesn't uncover anything for either side, right? The same applies for PR, same applies for your own LPs. I think that's a really cool insight for many emerging managers. And the same applies, and I forgot to mention this, for our own entrepreneurs. Exact example you gave. You know, we made this first investment. We have a board seat. My co-founder and I said, look, we're not going to be on that board sheet. We're available 24-7 on WhatsApp, by email, by phone number, anything. You know what we're going to put on the board sheet? We're going to put an LP of ours, our first business, a B2B SaaS. It's a tech product, but package is a B2B SaaS. We're going to put one of our LPs who's done the same thing, who built a SaaS B2B you know, tech heavy, exported it to the US, sold it six years after inception for more than $100 million to a, a New York-based business. We're going to put him on the board. And so that's what we've done. We put this guy on the board of this first investment we made. We're telling the company, do not compensate this guy financially. You don't have to pay the burden of having this guy. But we, the fund, Avni, we're going to give some carried interest to this person. So we are incentivizing not just on this company. Obviously, we want him to be successful with this first investment, but on the entire fund. An entrepreneur is, I mean, he thanks us for this. You know, for him, he's available once a month. And as you said, once a quarter, a bit more heavily. He feels like he's giving back to someone who's 20 years younger. He's helping him with challenges. He lives specifically, you know, exporting a business and building a product for the U.S. And later, you know, he has carried interest in the fund. I mean, the guy loves it. And we've reserved 20% of carried interest in our fund for specifically those LPs are going to take board seats in every single investment we make. And that's the perfect way to end the, the podcast episode, but we always end with a quick fire round, Gus. And that's when I'll ask you a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I am ready. Born ready. <laughs> First question, what areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that you find people around you not really that excited about? MedTech. The reason why I say MedTech is I think a lot of people find it too complicated to delve into. Which is a great reason to invest in itself. Gus, second question of the quick fire round. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising for their fund? My top tip is try to find an anchor investor or, or try to find a club of investor who like you enough. They want to back you. And so you can start with an initial capital of three, four, five million. Focusing on that anchor capital, whether it's one or a group, doesn't really matter that anchor capital. Love that. Third and final question of the quick fire, Gus. And this is one of my favorite ones, which is what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? 
one counterintuitive things I've learned is that it's not because someone doesn't answer their email when you're reaching out to them for fundraising that they're not interested. People are busy. A lot of times you're reaching out to wealthy individuals who have a lot of things going on, just like you do. And it's not because they haven't answered to your first email or your second email, your first text message that they're not answered. They're not interested. I've been surprised, you know, by emailing someone once, twice, and calling them and texting them. And eventually when I can get a hold of them, they're like, oh, I, I love what you're doing. I'm super interested. I'll put 200,000. It's very counterintuitive because you want to give up. You want to give up, but you can't give up. Eventually, I'm sure there's some people, they're definitely not interested. They're ghosting you, but you know, you got to go all the way. I have to ask a follow-up question to this one because in our syndicates, I would agree there's some people that when we're trying to get them from soft commit to hard commit, right? It's following up, following up, and then they never reply. And then one day, like super close to the deadline, they're like, yeah, 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 I'm super interested. And they take care of it in seconds. But I've also noticed something else, which is I also found quite counterintuitive in the beginning is that a lot of super responsive people in the beginning, I don't know if they're fishing for information or not, but is that something that you have encountered as well that also responsiveness isn't necessarily a good proxy? So the other way around? Yeah, I agree with you. It's counterintuitive too. I've had this actually. That's another counterintuitive. I've had people say, as soon as I told, as I said, I was leaving New Fund, just, oh, you know, I'd love to put money, you know, send me the deck, whatever. And then you send them the deck and <laughs> they stopped existing. That's terrible. So I, I agree. It's the same thing that we always say to founders as well, right? Understand, especially when, not when you're racing from VCs, but when you're racing from angels, understand that most of them are doing it for the fun of it. And for that reason, they're more than happy to just run you through their process and teach them how to think about your space and how you're going to change the world. At some point, really need to just own the process and make sure that you're driving this to a clear yes or no. And that goes for emerging managers as well. You need to make sure that you're driving towards the yes or no uh, instead of just keeping that line of communication open with someone who's just having the fun of their lives. Gus, thanks a million for entertaining us for some 40 minutes here on EUVC. We're so thankful for having you with us. Can't wait to bark on uh, the OVNI journey with you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.